Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Bumper Sticker Writer. Mr. Bumper Sticker Writer. Never has one man written so much for so many. Without you, the world may never have known you can't hug with nuclear arms. And just like you, I too would rather be fishing, or square dancing, or even shopping. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. You said it, brother. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh part of the bumper. Thanks to you, I know it's perfectly all right to honk if I'm horny. Honk, honk, beep, beep, honk. Bud Light beer, and I suppose St. Louis, Missouri. They believed in Brooks Robinson when others were still suspicious of his talents. They, among others, made my coming into baseball as well as sticking with it, all the better. And then I count another blessing, one that players in today's game may never appreciate because of baseball's changing structure. That is Baltimore. Baltimore and playing in that great city for my entire major league career. I share this day today with my adopted hometown because the people of that town have supported Brooks Robinson not only on the good days but also on the bad days. My career has been all the more meaningful because of the Oriole fans and friends, many of whom have made this trip to join me here today. I'd like to thank William Donald Schaefer, the greatest mayor that a city could have. And say, Baltimore, thank you very much. I love you all. <laughs> then there is the Baltimore Oriole Organization, which over the past 29 years, from top to bottom, has proven itself to be the best.
from high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call... Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamans? What's good? Is it Tuesday already? I, I feel like we were just here doing this a couple days ago, which of course we were when I dropped that Eddie Wakus pod. Which, by the way, thank you for all the great response on Wakus. What a crazy story, right? The response to that show has literally been overwhelming, and I am glad that it seems to have gone over well. In fact, the show as a whole is rolling right now. I I have some super dope BKP and Let's Talk Baseball podcast network merch coming soon. I can't wait to show you that. Actually, ready to roll out in about three weeks. The staff and I put a lot of thought into our creations, and I gotta be honest, I know I'm biased, but man... Some of this swag is off the hook, baby. So, we got that to look forward to. The show has taken off the past two months. And we are literally breaking personal weekly and monthly records. As there is a genuine buzz about the show. So much so, that I want to thank curator Danny Barrera and owner Bruce Hellerstein of the National Ballpark Museum out in Denver, Colorado, for playing my shows over the gallery of speakers for the last couple of days. I, I really appreciate that, fellas. I was checking out some of your exhibits, and it is just fascinating stuff. Stuff from all these historical ballparks like Griffith Field, Forbes Field, the Polo Grounds. I can't wait to pop in on you guys one day for a surprise visit. It's coming. And the three of us are going to have a sit-down in a couple of months. Uh, when this season is, you know, heading into the post. And we'll talk about some of the features you have there. And folks, if you are in the Denver area, maybe planning a ski trip or some vacation time, it's not far from Coors Field. You can kill two birds with one stone, catch a Rockies game, and visit my boys Danny and Bruce at the National Ballpark Museum out there. Check out some of those uh, great baseball artifacts. And to top it off, you might get a chance to hear yours truly blaring over the speakers as you walk through that baseball time portal. It's located at 1940 Blake Street in Denver. It's open Monday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Adults for $20. Seniors, $65 and over, $10. Kids, 16 and under. Active military members, you get in free. I mean, that's a great deal. You can call 303-974-5835. That's 303-974-5835 for questions. And I'm sure Bruce and Danny will answer you any that you may have for them. 
That's the National Ballpark Museum, 1940 Blake Street, Denver, Colorado, 303-974-5835. I definitely want to give those guys a backwards K-Pod shout-out for supporting the show. And like I said, we're going to be talking soon. Folks, I'm not even lying. This runaway freight train is firing on all cylinders right now. No need to pump the brakes yet. So let's get this week's show on track. As I noticed, the catcher was thrown out a second, and the infield is now tossing that rock around. So look, kiss your loved ones uh, goodbye. Let's clear this platform and load up our BKP time travel troop. Choo choo has high call. All aboard. And I'm going to set our time and destination for May 18th, 1937, Little Rock, Arkansas, to witness the rise of one of my true baseball heroes, Mr. Brooks Robinson. And as most of you know, I'm a die, I'm as die-hearted Oriole fan as they come. Uh, I don't overload the catalog with the Oriole shows. I, I try to spread the wealth out like Bernie Sanders. Uh, for the most part. And I, and I think we can all agree. I attack all of these topics passionately, judiciously. But, you know, I'm human. And that means I do have biases. And if I'm being honest, I do have a little brighter fire into my ass this week. So, uh, I got to tell you, when, when, when I grew up, when you grow up in Baltimore, you, you, you're taught at a young age to show Brooksy the reverence and the respect of a world leader. His mythos in the Charm City is larger than baseball. Shit, it's larger than life. He represents a past that that city is always trying to reclaim. An age when Baltimore sports gods like Unitas, Frank, Palmer, Lenny, Bubba, Raymond, Artie, and of course, Brucey used to roam the neighborhoods. Dude, you don't even have to say their whole name and you know exactly who I'm talking about. There's a saying where I come from. In New York, they named a candy bar after Reggie Jackson. In Baltimore, we name our children after Brooks Robinson. And folks, that ain't empty platitudes being offered up. It's fact. I guesstimated before the show that I know at least 12 people named Brooks. Boys and girls, it's not coincidence. They were named after number five. That's funny. I was on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and up popped a picture of Brooks on this day eating a Maryland crab cake with a huge smile on his face. And, and, and I thought to myself, that's the most Baltimore thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. Through it all, I think Brooks would agree. He made all of us citizens better, and we helped make him better. It's a love that will last forever. He is, and always will be, Mr. Oriel. Now, before we catch these wormholes, bend baseball, space and time, I got to tell you, I was thinking about... The 1969, 1970, 1971 World Series. The three series that the Orioles go 1-2 in those three years. A lot of people consider this a choke or underperforming. I certainly wouldn't call it choking, but you may have a valid argument in the underperforming argument. But many people forget that Brooks and Company won the World Series in 66. So actually, the Orioles won two World Series in six years. And they went 2-2. Two and two. 
Because I'm telling you, I would take that all day from the boys right now in the black and orange with no shame. But that's not the, really the point I'm driving to. 69, 70, 71. They may have been some of the most outrageous defensive World Series games ever. In 1969, I covered the Amazing Mets. It's in the catalog. The Mets outfield defense of Ron freaking Swoboda, Tommy Agee, Cleon Jones. They were nothing short of spectacular. And in conjunction with dominant, dominating pitching, that 69 Orioles team never had a chance in that series. In 71, another World Series I covered, the Roberto Clemente story. I mean, the great one was out of this world out in right field. I, he, he showed his ass. But 1970 belonged to Brooks. He blistered Reds pitchers, try as they might. Cincinnati could not hit the ball past Brooksy. It was like the balls were magnetized to his glove after leaving the bat. On October 15, 1970, in the series-clinching game with the Orioles, while they're holding a 3-1 to advantage against the Young Red Machine, Brooks Robinson had already made his mark in the Paul Classic with a game-winning home run in Game 1. He robbed Hall of Famers uh, Tony Perez, Johnny Bench with these gravity-defying diving snags in Game 3. He laced a two-out RBI single in Game 4. And he wasn't an offensive, offensive factor in Game uh, 5, the, the 9-3 Orioles victory. In fact, in his last at bat in the eighth, he struck out looking. And, you know, backwards K-Pod in the books, right? So Brooks, he, he hangs his head and he walks back to the dugout. But all of Memorial Stadium rose to their feet as the inmates at the world's largest outdoor insane asylum saluted their hero with a standing ovation. Brooks met a 429 in 1970 World Series with 17 total bases and 9 hits. Two of those hits were doubles in Game 3 that produced 2 RBI. And going back to the Open, where I'm talking about the stellar defensive World Series, uh, World Series that were 1969, 70, and 71. I mean, some of the best defense that the series has ever had to offer. Brooks Robinson put on a show at that hot corner. Better yet, let, let me in that, amend that. Brooks Robinson was the show with the bat and the leather down there at the hot corner. The bulk of his 24 flawless fielding chances of the series, they were like laser shots trying to penetrate the hot corner defenses. And they seemed to always come at key game-changing opportune moments. With a backwards K next to Brooksy's name in the eighth, the Reds had one last chance to force a game six at home. Johnny Bench, who was en route to winning NL MVP honors that year, he walks to the plate looking for something hard to hit, and he smokes a foul ball rope that literally breaks the sound barrier down the third base line. It's seemingly, it's also going to be out of reach of Robinson. And if you watch Robbie Phil. He's never flat-footed. His feet are always moving. Once the pitcher goes into his wind-up, much, you know, like playing defense in basketball. How many times did coach tell you to move your freaking feet when playing D? Brooks was never called flat-footed. That's first and foremost about his defense. He had beautiful, impeccable footwork. Most of the time, 
It was perfect. When Bench melted that pitch down the line, Brooks was ready. He was anticipating Bench to pull, and in a blur, he dives and catches the liner for out number one. Of course, forcing Bench to mutter once again to himself as he makes his way back to the Reds' dugout. It was fitting for Brooks to go to the jugular and finish Cincinnati off with what else but his glove. Of course, it was plays like these that forced Red Slugger Lee May to call him Hoover, the human vacuum cleaner. The crowd at Memorial Stadium again acknowledges their star. Fittingly, the last play of the series was probably Brooks' easiest play. When he throws out Pat Corrales after he taps a soft grounder to him. And I've met Brooks. I've interviewed Brooks. And he is the definition of what you see is what you get. Success has never compromised his moral integrity or his upstanding character. Now in his 80s, you can still see him in his adopted hometown, munching on some Atlantic Blues, talking those Oreos with the people around him. And even today, he remains as as authentic and genuine as the day he left Arkansas to pursue his baseball dreams. I'm sure Brooks has bad days just like all of us human, human beings, but you would never know. He is engaging. He adores his city. And one look from his wide eyes that, quite frankly, I always felt like, you know, man, those eyes hold a well of baseball stories. And that, oh, shucks, smile. He grabs your heart from the smallest kid named Brooks that only knows him from the four generations of almost mythical stories that have been handed down to him or her to the most cynical of old school cats who is maybe turned off by the Orioles' lack of success or just the modern baseball game and their players in general. Brooks can still grab your heart with a mere look. He captures you in his web and you understand quickly why he is beloved and coined Mr. Orioles. If you spend a few minutes with him or interview him, he inspires you. He's still making people better around him today. When Brooks was dominating the 1970 World Series, there was a young boy in the Orioles clubhouse every day watching his hero. And he would say to himself over and over and over, that's who I want to be when I play big league ball. That kid was Calverton Jr., the son of Calverton Sr., coach of the Orioles. He conducted himself with class for 23 seasons in an Orioles uniform. And he has gladly, gladly fulfilled every extenuous obligation the club has ever presented him with. And to this day, he does it with passion and joy for the city and the team that he will always love. He's lived most of his married life in the charm. He's raised four children, sent them to Baltimore schools. He's endorsed and financed local grassroots businesses. The Robinsons are active in their church, and to this day, Brooksy continues to greet total strangers every single day, like their old childhood chums from Arkansas. And speaking of Arkansas, here we are now, pulling up in Little Rock, May 18th, 1937, 
for the birth of arguably the greatest defensive third baseman who has ever lived. And look, today I'm rocking the classic black on orange, Brooks Robinson shirt in the studio. I got my jersey collection. I wear it with pride here in South Carolina. I'm so happy to have this platform and add you to my collection, Mr. Robinson. His father, who was named Brooks as well, and his mother, Ethel, they were loving and doting parents who taught the boy at a young age to always be respectful and to pursue your dreams. The elder Brooks, Calvert Robinson, was highly influential and instrumental in his son's baseball development, as long as Brooks can remember. His mom would often tell him that his first baseball club was bigger than him. His father always made sure to tuck it into the youngster's crib when he was about to fall asleep. And one of Brooks' earliest memories in life is when his father saw the family broomstick for him to use as his first bat. And little Brooks was always walking around, you know, uh, Little Rock here, carrying his homemade bat, looking for rock piles to smash stones. And he would do this for hours as a young boy. And he actually grew his arm by delivering newspapers on a round of 150 people that included Yankees Hall of Fame catcher Bill Dickey. In the 8th grade, Brooks writes a composition assignment for his English class. And it's entitled... Why I want to play Major League Baseball. More specifically, third base for his favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals. By high school, Brooks plays football and basketball for Little Rock Central. But it's on the baseball diamond where he excels. One of the first scouts to notice Brooks was Lindsey Deal, a former minor league teammate of Orioles GM slash manager Paul Richards, the tall Texan. After his graduation in 1959, Robinson and his parents consider many baseball offers, but they accept the offer from the O's. It had a $40,000 signing bonus attached to it. Four grand in 1955 has the purchasing power of around $46,000 of the 2023 economy. Thank you. The Orioles were but a lowly organization at the time. They're just a year removed from their exodus out of St. Louis as the mediocre Browns. Orioles scout... Arthur Ellers, he used the Orioles' lackluster standings as the selling point of his pitch. Telling Robinson, you got a chance to move up faster with us than any other team in baseball. So, Robinson begins his professional baseball career in York, Pennsylvania, where he is stuck with the label of all glove and no stick. He didn't have many believers when he began his major league journey. In fact, the PA announcer for the Piedmont League, he called him Bob Robinson in his first pro plate appearance. Brooks realized that the only person in the organization who is really taking him seriously was Paul Richards. The tall Texan had an eye for talent, and he had a vision for the future Orioles that absolutely included Brooks Robinson. Gene Woodling recalled how he thought the old man had lost his mind with the unfettered belief he held in Robinson. Woodling saw a kid who couldn't hit, he was slow and unathletic, and his arm was weak. Nah, he fucking missed a boat there, didn't he? 
Brooks spent the next four years bouncing between the minors and the show. He's playing at San Antonio in May of 1956 when he hears that the Orioles have obtained the services of veteran uh, future Hall of Famer White Sox third baseman George Kell. San Antonio manager Joe Schultz, he tells Brooksy, don't sweat it. Mr. Richards has high hopes for you. Kell is just a stopgap until the 19-year-old can get some needed seasoning and he's ready for the majors. And it would take Robson a couple of shots to finally stick. He hits 272 in 154 games for San Antonio in 1956 before a September call-up where he bats 227 in 15 games. He hits his first Major League home run when he takes Senators pitcher uh, Evelio Hernandez deep at Griffith Park out in the district. In 1957, Brooks starts the season as a starting third baseman for the Orioles, but he struggles hitting 239 and he's demoted to San Antonio once again, where he hits a respectable 266. His first full season in Orioles gear comes in 1958. He plays in 145 games. He bats 238 with three home runs. In 1959, he's again sent down, this time to Vancouver, British Columbia of the Pacific Coast League. And Brooks begins to rake. He hits 331 in 42 games before going back to Baltimore, and this time, it's for good. He struggles in July with a 183 average. Brooks is thinking he may be going down again. He rebounds, though, batting 340 for the rest of the season, and he claimed the position and real estate he would lord over for the next 16 years. On August 26, 1959, Brooks made the wisest decision in his private life outside of baseball. On a road flight from Kansas City to Boston, Brooks he spies a uh, stewardess that he is instantly smitten by. He calls a young lady and asks her for a glass of tea. She gets it, places it on a folding stand in front of the ball player, and a cold shiver runs up his spine when she says, Here you are, sir. He is absolutely mesmerized. He hurriedly finishes the tea, and he asks her for another with his southern genteel drawl. Boy, you're thirsty, huh? Oh my God, she's talking to me. Brooks thinks to himself, that voice, those eyes, who is she? Brooks can't help himself. He, he slams the second glass of tea and he asks for a third. The stewardess happily brings him another and she is smiling upon her retur- return to the, uh, his chair. Brooks is overwhelmed by the magnificence of her beautiful smile. She's not annoyed by me. I, I don't think I'd better press my luck you know, and get another tea. So as he's sipping this glass of iced tea... He, he, he just can't take his eyes off of her. And she can feel him looking at her. She, he, she's been in this business for a while. And she knows when, you know, male passengers are looking at her. So, with one last gulp, and with the flattering of the ice cubes and the now empty glass, Brooksy sets the cup down and begins to approach her in the gallery. In his mind, he has no idea what he's going to say to this chick. But, he knows... He's going to hate himself tomorrow sitting in that Fenway dugout dugout, asking himself why he didn't pursue her. She turns around. She sees him coming and there's that beautiful smile again. Brooks feels like everything is in slow motion as he walks up to her and he says the first thing that comes to his mind. I just want you to know that all these guys on this plane are married. So 
if any of them try to talk to you, you need to know I'm the only eligible bachelor on this team. Proxy, <laughs> you old smoothie. Good move, brother. He has her laughing from that opening salvo. And he eventually asks her, What's your name? Where are you from? She replies back, I'm Connie Butcher, and I'm from Detroit. And Brooks is lost in her eyes. Well, Connie, it is so nice to meet you. My name is Brooks. He goes back to his seat, and he sits down for the rest of the flight. Now, neither one of them can stop occasionally glancing at one another and smiling like two kids with a secret. When the plane lands and everyone gets off the plane, Brooksy walks up to Connie and asks her to join him for dinner, and she accepts. As they sit eating and talking to one another about their lives, Brooks knows this is the woman I'm going to marry. They exchange numbers and begin a long-distance dating relationship. You know, a, a traveling pro baseball player and a plane stewardess. Hey, hey, that's got to be tough. He, he fails, he falls head over heels for Connie. And she fell for Brooks as well. After six god-awful seasons... The Baltimore Orioles shocked the baseball world by challenging the New York Yankees with an AL pennant in 1960. On September 15th, the Orioles are somehow tied with the mighty Yanks, but the Bombers were going to tear win the next 15 straight games to leave the birds in the dust. At the very tender age of 23, Brooks has established himself as the clubhouse leader on a very young team. He hit 295 that year, Dropped 14 home runs, 88 ribs, earning his first uh, two all-star appearances, his first gold glove, and he was honored as the Orioles MVP. 1960 here. He also finished third behind New York's Eminem boys, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. Uh, that was in the MVP Valley. Even though the team came up short in their World Series aspirations, he did win the greatest victory of his life. When he marries Connie on October 8th at her family's summer home in Windsor, Ontario. And those two lovebirds are still together to this day. Brooks loves holding hands with his wife and taking long walks together. In fact, Buck Showalter, New York Mets manager, has a great story about running into Connie and Brooks one day. We were looking around for a house. We decided to buy a place. And where he lives is actually too far out and actually a little... I rent, but it was too far, a little too far away. We were driving around because it was so pretty, and uh, I said, geez, there's Brooks walking down the road. He and his wife were walking in the neighborhood, and uh, it was just starting to drizzle, and uh, I said, i got to stop. So we stopped, and I said, hi, Brooks, how you doing? He goes, hey, Buck, how you doing? And he came over and started talking about the Orioles and baseball, and it started raining, and his wife said, come on, Brooks, let's go. He goes, no, I'm talking to Buck, and I'll be here. It's <laughs> raining, and he just he stayed there and talked. In 1961, Brooks follows up a successful 1960 campaign with yet another solid year, batting 287, mostly from that leadoff position, even though the Orioles never came close to competing with the pennant-winning Yankees. The next year, under new Orioles manager Billy Hitchcock, Robinson sets career highs at the time in home runs with 23 and RBIs with 86. And he bats 306 to top it off. Uh... Brooksy falls off considerably in 1963, finishing with a 251 average and 11 home runs. 
The team continued to slide in the standings at the end of the year. Hitchcock is fired, and Hank Bauer is tabbed to fill that void. In 1964, Brooks has perhaps the finest season in his illustrious career. He misses only two innings of the 163-game schedule that year. He matches out 194 hits, 28 dongs, and a league-best 118 RBI. He goes white hot down the stretch, hitting 464 in the month of September, raising his average from 294 to 317. He was voted to AL MVP, and he won his fifth consecutive Gold Glove Award. The Yankees finally came back to earth. The Orioles finished with 94 wins, but it would be the Twins who would snatch the AL pennant. Brooksy suffered his first injury as a major leaguer when he broke his thumb after being hit with a fastball by Tigers pitcher Hank Aguirre. He played in 144 games after missing just one game in the previous four years combined. He batted 297 with 18 home runs. Uh, that's the 1965 season. And after that season, the Orioles underwent some major changes. Jared Hoffberger. Chairman of the National Brewing Company bought a majority stake in the team. They then went out and hired Harry Dalton to be the GM. I talked about both of these events in detail in the Earl Weaver bio, and you can find that in the catalog of archive shows here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. So, at this point, Harry Dalton deduces that with Brooks being the only right-handed power threat on the team, it would serve the club well to complement Brooksy with another power bat from the starboard side. Dalton molests the Cincinnati Reds in one of the biggest mismatch deals in baseball history, sending Jack Bowson, Milt Pappas, and Dick Simpson to the Queen City for slugging outfielder Frank Robinson for the next six years, whom Reds owner famously, uh, Bill DeWitt famously referred to as an old 30-year-old play intimating that Frank's better years were long gone behind him. Very few baseball takes in the history of the game have ever worst, uh, have ever aged worse than that fucking statement right there. For the next six years, the Robinson boys, and yes, all of us are related somehow. Frank and Brooks are my cousins, so is Jackie, real talk. Look, the Robinsons have always been freaks. We, we will literally procreate with any race or ethnic background. We don't care. Yeah, I mean, you should have seen my Thanksgiving table when I was growing up. We had it all, baby. Blacks, whites, Asians, Africans, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists. I swear to you, this is no bullshit. I'm not even joking. And we had to have UN phones installed at the table so we could understand each other over there at Thanksgiving turkey. Look, if aliens ever move here, a Robinson will be the first to fucking impregnate it. I'm just saying. So, yes, it's a fact. All Robinsons on the planet are somehow related. I truly believe that. <laughs> but anyway, where was I? I had a point. I know I had a point. Where, where, where was I? Ah, yes. The Robinson boys. They would define the franchise and the culture of the organization that proceeded on after the boys were gone. They changed everything. I mean, they were a totally different kind of animal when 
Frank Robinson came aboard. He changed everything forever. For the next 30 years, he changed everything. In fact, Jim Palmer's got a great story about Frank Robinson when he comes to the team. Frank flies in. He's wearing dress clothes, a shirt and tie, dress shoes. And he meets the boys out at Memorial Stadium. They're all practicing. And the boys are like, come on, man, take a shot. Take a hack up there. And Frank, the consummate leader, he doesn't want to let his new team down. So he takes his tie off. He rolls his shirt sleeve up. His, his, I mean, you know, powerful forearms. And he stands in the box against Jim Palmer. And Jim Palmer throws him a little two-seamer that runs away from him. And Frank just belted it into the right center field gap. And he's literally in dress shoes, running around the bases, and he slides into second base like it's the third game of the World Series. Jim Palmer turns to Brooks Robinson, and he says, Brooksy, we just won the fucking AL pennant. True story. And folks, I think I'm going to take a break right here. Don't go anywhere, freaks. Let me figure out my course for Brooksy here in Acts 2 and 3. Get this BKP time travel choo-choo back to Terrorist Station. BRBC heads, see you on the other side of the break. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Ted, Dave Key, executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands after. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base fire. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, 
you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com for this one. He goes better to his left than the right, but how can you beat this? And getting a ball away off balance and still there, even though on a bounce. You know, it's amazing how similar we are. We have the same last name. And we both played baseball for the same team. We even drank the same beer, light beer from Miller. And we drink it for the same reason. Light has a third less calories than their regular beer. And it's less filling. But we drink it because it tastes so great. Now, I know we're incredibly alike, but don't be confused. We are not identical twins. How <laughs> at least twins as tall as he is. Late beer from Miller. Everything you always wanted in a beer, and less. times of the great Brooks Robinson uh, at this you know the Orioles have been a young team on the rise since 1960 we're now going into the 1966 season and Harry Dalton the GM of the Orioles has just raped Cincinnati to uh, get the returns of Frank Robinson slugging outfielding red and he shows up in his first practice. He laces a double off of Jim Palmer into the right center field gap. Slides into second base like a maniac with his dress shoes on. Jim Palmer turns to Brooks. And he says, Brooksy, we just fucking won the pennant. And many wondered if Brooks would feel some type of way by the arrival Frank was uh, an established leader while playing for the Reds. He was the first black superstar for the Orioles. And after moving over to the junior circuit, he was now one of the first in the American League. Brooks, on the other hand, was from the Jim Crow South, Little Rock, Arkansas, who only nine years before 1966 had integrated their school system with the assistance and persuasion of the National Guard. But Brooks... Didn't feel threatened at all by Frank. 
He was like, this is exactly what we need. And he accepted him with open arms. He formed a synergy with him from the moment he showed up at that practice. And in return, Frank eased the clubhouse motivate, motivator burden pressure of a long baseball season off the shoulders of youngsters Brooks and first baseman Boo Powell. But most important, Frank's presence took the O's lineup to a whole other dimension. I mean, what were the Reds possibly thinking? The tandem stepped out over the day, 1966, in Fenway Park. Frank gets hit by a pitch, and Brooks falls with a two-run blast over the monster. And a 5-4 victory, and they never looked back. Frank was the missing ingredient. Old Man River would win the AL MVP and the Triple Crown, but Brooks was also a valuable contributor to the team's runaway success, culminating in finally winning the club's first AL pennant by nine games over the Minnesota Twins. Brooks played all nine innings of the All-Star Game in St. Louis that year, and even though the AL lost 2-1, to one, Brooks had a trouble, a triple, two singles in the game, and won the All-Star MVP award. The Orioles were set to face the heavily favored Dodgers in 1966 for the first uh, World Series in franchise history. The young Orioles gave all the doubters and pundits the finger and ran through the Dodgers in four games for the club's first World Championship. In Game 1, the Robinson boys dropped Dog all over Don Drysdale's lips in the first inning, cruising to a 5-2 victory to open that series. Those two runs, they'd be the only runs the Dodgers would score for the rest of the World Series as the Orioles pitchers threw three straight, complete game shutouts. Frank would win the series MVP. Brooks would be the runner-up. And Sandy Koufax would be permanently put on the shelf with an L in his last game versus rookie Jim Palmer. In 1967, the O's are beset with injuries to pitchers Palmer and McNally. And a down year by the offseason, uh, by the offense, which saw off years by several hitters' standards. Robinson hit 269 with 22 home runs. The Orioles went back up to second place the next year. Though a mid-summer uh, scuffle would cost Hank Bauer his job in favor of GM's Harry Dalton's successor in Waite, Earl Weaver. Brooksy's first evaluation of Weaver after meeting him, he called him intense and just insecure enough to have us playing out all the time. And those remarks would prove to be prophetic as Weaver was as intense as any manager in the history of the game, but... He was a very insecure man who felt everyone on the planet was conspiring against him and his ball club. Brooks' 1969 stat line by his standards was subpar. He batted 234 with 23 home runs, 84 ribs, but the team was dominant, chopping off the heads of their uh, AL opponents en route to a 109-53 record and a sweep of the Minnesota Twins and the ALCS. Despite losing the 1969 World Series to the Amazing Mets, a story I covered judiciously in the archives, the Orioles find themselves back in the World Series the next year versus Cincy. This time, 
The Birds finished with a uh, 108-54 record and another sweep of Minnesota in the ALCS. Three of Brooksy's 18 home runs that season had significance, uh, had, you know, had some weight here. On May 9th, he drops Dong on White Sox Southpaw Tommy John for his 200th career dinger. On June 20, he gets his 2,000th hit when he homers off of Senators pitcher Joel Coleman. And the third home run was his first walk-off, Dong, and that came off Red Sox hurler Sparky Lyle. His dominance in the series versus the Mets and made him a household name outside of Baltimore. Teammates and rivals outwardly admired Brooks after his scintillating showing in the series. His teammate Booger said, In a late-inning, tight game, I'd rather have Brooks than myself at the plate. The next, 30, uh, the next year, the 34-year-old third baseman won his fourth and last Orioles MVP award with 20 home runs, 92 RBI, and a 272 BA. Baltimore once again ran away with the AL East. They rack up 100 wins. They sweep Oakland in the ALCS for their third straight World Series appearance in a row and their fourth in six years. Thus, the stage was set for the World Series matchup between the Orioles and the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I've covered this World Series most prominently in show number one, the Roberto Clemente bio. The Orioles took a 2-0 lead as the series, as, uh, in the series as Robinson reached base five times in the 11-3 victory in Game 2. On page 44 of the World Series program that was circulated at Memorial Stadium, Orioles fans were delighted by the now-famous Norman Rockwell art print of Robinson signing an autograph for a boy sitting in the front seats. Despite winning the first two games, the Pirates dismantled the Orioles in seven games on the strength of star Roberto Clemente, who had a series every bit as memorable as Brooksy's the year before. Shortly upon his return to the States after barnstorming in Japan during the offseason, the Orioles traded Frank Robinson to the Dodgers. The Orioles, without their heart and soul, fearless leader, they fell to the middle of the division. And Brooks could only muster a uh, 250 average. The Birds would once again reach the AL East Apex, only to be rebuffed by the new AL powerhouse team, the Oakland A's, in 1973 and 1974. In 1975, the 38-year-old Robinson won his 16th Gold Glove Award. But he also only hit 201 and 211 in 1976. By the end of 1976, Doug DeSensei is now the full-time third baseman, and the writing is on the wall. He replaces Billy Hunter on the coaching staff when he bolts for the Rangers, but before he hangs up his spikes for good, Robinson leaves one more magical moment for his loyal Oriole followers to bask in. On April 19th, 1977, the O's are trailing the Tribe by three runs in the bottom of the 10th inning. Lee May, who back in the 1970 World Series gave Brooks the human vacuum cleaner uh, moniker and who was victimized himself twice by Brooks' defense in the series, decided, look, if I can't beat him, I want to join him. So, he singled in a run to bring the Orioles to a 3-2 deficit. And with two runners on, Earl Weaver calls on Brooks to pinch it for Larry Harlow. 
Facing Dave LaRoche, he works the count pool. Great two pitch. The pitch is hit high and deep to left field. The game is over. Brooks Robinson with a three-run homer. And believe it or not, the kids from Baltimore and the veterans from Baltimore win tonight six to five on a Brooks Robinson home run. Let's tell you again. Brooks Robinson, a three-run homer, and the Orioles corralled him right at home plate. They are just climbing all over Brooks Robinson, and the Orioles have won the game six to five. And that's Bill O'Donnell on the call. I believe that's back in the WFBR days, if I'm not mistaken. And with that magical game-winning shot, that was the last home run of Brooksy's career, finishing with a total of 268. On September 18th, 1977, the franchise and fans paid tribute to their er- to the end of an era uh, by celebrating Brooks Robinson Day at the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. He was driven around the park in a 1955 Cadillac convertible as the crowd of over 51,000 fans roared their approval. Dougie DeSensei, he ran to the, onto the field, he scooped up some dirt from around third and presented it to Brooks. At the end of the season... Both he and his brunette cousin Frank were honored as the charter members of the Orioles Hall of Fame. Robinson would stay connected to the Orioles in the city of Baltimore throughout the majority of his ten years. Uh, through the major- I'm sorry, through the majority of years after his career, he and Connie did retire to a Southern California home in 1993. But Brooks would return to his adopted Maryland roots in 2011, and he's remained a fixture since. Uh, he had a broadcast career with the Orioles, did some play-by-play. He lended his name to products like Rawlings, All-Star Dodge, Crown Petroleum, and SK Hot Dogs. Products that once or still dominate the Baltimore market. He has done the baseball card circuit and has admittedly signed everything from a pet rock to an Easter egg to a portrait of Frank Robinson and even plane tickets. In 1983... The last year his beloved Orioles would win a World Series, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. He's a part owner of the York Revolution baseball team in the Independent Atlantic League. And a few years ago, his son gifted him the original Norman Rockwell painting bearing his likeness, and it still hangs in the family recreation room in his Timonium house today. He had a health scare in 2009 with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, but even cancer doesn't want any part of Brooks and his positive energy early treatment and his indomitable will to beat cancer's ass. And Mr. Oreo is still going strong today. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to end it today. I'm proud to have Brooksy in my collection. You are one of my true baseball heroes. And I never even saw you play. Imagine that. I'm proud of that. You uh, you know, I'm proud that you represent my favorite team and you are truly loved by my city and time will never dim the glory of your deeds, brother. Thank y'all for hanging in there with me and I hope you enjoyed listening to my hero story as much as I enjoyed telling the tale. And I promise, I promise, I'll try to be better next week. Uh, you know, today I didn't have to use the AK, I gotta say. It was a good day. Before I roll out like ludicrous, let's take one last look 
at those oh-so-lovely Brooks Robson stats, shall we? Brooks, Calvert, Robinson, a.k.a. the Human Vacuum Cleaner, a.k.a. Hoover, a.k.a. Mr. Impossible, a.k.a. Mr. Orioles. 23-year baseball career for the Baltimore Orioles, born on May 18, 1937. His 78.4 war is the seventh highest by a third baseman in the history of baseball behind Mike Schmidt, Wade Box, George Brett, Eddie Matthews, Adrian Beltre, Ron Santo, and Chipper Jones. He played in 2,896 games, the most of any third baseman in baseball history. And, man, was he durable. Five times he played in every game of the year. 11,783 plate appearances, 1,232 runs. 2,848 hits, 482 doubles, 68 triples, 268 dogs, 1,357 RBI, 28 stolen bases, 22 times caught, which, you know, that, that could not have made Earl Weaver very fucking happy. 860 walks to 990 strikeouts, 4,270 total bases. You know I love my total bases, folks. That's the 64th most in baseball history. And he's sandwiched between Robinson Cournot at 30, 63 and Eddie Collins, who is 65th all time. His final slash line is 267, 322, 401, a 723 OPS, and a 105 OPS plus. 18-time All-Star, 16 gold gloves, the most ever at the third base position. 1964 AL MVP, 1966 AL uh, All-Star MVP, four times he was in the top five voting for AL MVP. And he was a clutch postseason threat with a 303-323-462 playoff slash line, five home runs, 22 RBIs, and 39 postseason games. The 1970 World Series MVP. Defensively, there isn't an Orioles fan on the planet who will take anyone defensively over Brooks. Scott Rowland, Adrian Beltre, Manny Machado, Nolan Ornato. None of them can carry Brooks' bags. In 2,870 games, he had uh, 9,165 career chances and only committed 263 errors, folks. 9,165 chances, 263 errors. He's about as automatic as Ravens kicker Justin Tucker is to kicking field goals. His 39.1 defensive war is third all-time in baseball history in any position. If you'd like to compare Brooks to some players, I recommend guys like Buddy Bell, Robin Yount, Gary Gaetti, and others. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Mr. Oreo, Brooks Robinson, number five in your program, but number one in my heart. Thank you again for hanging out in my sandbox and building sandcastles with me this week. And let's do it again next week. What do you think? So yeah, I'm ready to shut it down, grab the dog, head out to the beach, I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions, none of that horse shit. I'm just going to keep them coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. 
You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Otani, you haters. So, with Brooks Robinson completed, nicely folded, and added to our collection, and with a BK uh, backwards K now in the books, I turn my attention to our baseball Hydra, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to take a look at the exodus of the Seattle Pilots. After one season, the expansion team in Seattle, they bolt for Kansas City one year. It's one of the craziest stories ever. And I intend to give you all the deets of just what the hell happened that year. One season, folks, and they were gone. I'm actually trying to secure uh, an interview for that show next week. Uh, I did an interview with this guy back in the day. He was a, he's a writer. He, he wrote all about it. And uh, we're going to try to get him in there next week. I'm not promising you, but it may be an interview pod next week. But look, that's another story. Pour another pot here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. You got something you want to say to me? Good, bad, or indifferent? You can hit me up through backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our show Twitter page is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter handle is at jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. Our YouTube channel is backwardskpod. Go check that out. Subscribe. Not only do I have these shows, but I also have interviews with guys like Benny Agbanyani, Bill Lee, Kenny Singleton, Ron Robinson, Bob Kendrick. So much more. So by all means, check it out. But you can always find me hanging out with the fans in the private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions. Come on in. Don't be an ass. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. The show is on virtually every platform available. Please leave a comment or review. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it. Nobody does it better. That's just facts, people. The beach is calling my soul today, folks. I need to get the hell out of here. It's a heat wave running through the deep south this past week. I need to jump in the Atlantic for a couple hours, get some body surfing in. I don't mean to go all clip claiming on you, but, uh, you know, it's a little known fact. I'm the sixth ranked body surfer in the world. So, yeah, I got that going for me. See you next week, boys and girls, with the Seattle Pilot Show. Parents, if you see your kid, they got their nose and their phones and like a bored and unproductive AF. By all means, take those little monkeys outside. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 straight to the pits of hell, you demon seed Southall. <laughs> See you next week, you steamhead freaks. Peace.